0: Welcome to the GnomeCast, Gnome Stew's tabletop gaming advice podcast. Here we talk with the other gnomes about gaming things to avoid becoming part of the stew, so I guess we'd better be good. This episode is brought to you by our awesome Patreon backers like the astounding Axel Kolowa, the esteemed Eric Heimel, and the grandiose Garrett Colon. Hey, if I mispronounce your names, please let me know. I do want to get them right. Today we have myself, Ange, along with JT and Tomas, and we're going to talk about the GM skill of knowing when to ask for dice rolls and when to not. As the saying goes, you got to know when to roll them, you got to know when to hold them. Before we dive into that main topic, though, we're going to ask our get-to-know-a-gnome question. What is one time when you were GMing where the dice did something so unexpected, it completely changed where you thought that scenario was going to go? JT, I'm going to start with you.
1: All right, so this was way back in the day, second Edition AD&D, uh, probably ooh, early 90s time frame, around there somewhere. And we had a very small group of adventurers. From memory, we had a thief, a paladin, a wizard, and I think a fighter, no cleric. So they stocked up on healing potions. But the uh, wizard was a goblin, and his strength was minimal. Uh, it, it was you know, he, he could barely carry his robes and his staff, let alone anything else. <laughs> so they come to the stereotypical... AD&D stuck door. And if they don't get through the door, the adventure ends pretty much the campaign ends, right? It, it's just one of those really poor design choices that that our modern designers avoid because of yes. lessons learned from the earlier dungeons that, that existed, which we'll get into shortly. The fighter with his, you know, he's a Conan style guy. So he steps up with his mighty fuse and kicks the hell out of the door, makes his die roll to force the door open and fails. The paladin, he's not too much weaker than the fighter, so he steps up. He fails. Um, the thief is like, "Well, I try to pick the lock," and I was like, "Well, the lock doesn't do you any good because the door's stuck. It's like just jammed in the door frame." And the thief goes, "Well, I'm not even going to try to kick down the door because the two brutes couldn't do it." Well, Sartak, the goblin wizard, steps up to the door, and he's got like a I don't know two percent chance to kick down the door. And Jason, the player, rolls his dice rolls an Ot-1, and he's like, yes, Sartak the Mighty Goblin kicks down the door, which he did. They continue adventuring. They find another stuck door. That was like a theme with this particular pre-published adventure. I don't even remember which one it was, to be honest with you. So the fighter, the paladin, blush and step away from the door, and Sartak the Mighty Goblin steps up, and Jason rolls another Ot-1, kicks down that door as well. (laughs) The dynamic in the group shifted after this happened three doors in a row where the paladin was the natural leader of the group right the the, the, the humans looked up to him all men want to be him all women want to <laughs> be with him that thing right so he was that kind of paladin well the paladin started following sartak the mighty goblin who was the wizard and following his lead so just through pure luck the dynamic of the party changed and the goblin was now the leader of the group. Even when they were in human settlements and in human cities and stuff, people would try to negotiate with the paladin. And he just put his hands up and back away and go, no, you have to talk to my boss. And he point down <laughs> at the goblin. That's hilarious. So that, that, that was one time where, you know, I don't even know what the odds are. I'm sure Matt Negley probably could do it off the top of his head, but rolling three out ones in a row when you need a not two to succeed. And he did. And that, that, that really changed the style and theme of the game uh, throughout the, the rest of the campaign. So
0: That's awesome. What about you, Tomás?
2: Well, I've got an interesting story to tell, uh, pretty much about the start of our, our current campaign with my friends, um, in which we are playing a game that is called uh, Kids on Brooms. It's a rules light game in a way that you play as some kind of Harry Potter-esque. Uh, and in the first session, we had the players go into some kind of jungle in which they had to investigate some uh, weird plant. That, and there were lots of different plants that were carnivore. So they would attack the different characters or NPCs who were there. When the characters went in a certain direction and approached the deepest parts of the jungle, a plant attacked one of the NPCs that, went, that were over there. So the player characters had to attack in some way and defend the, the poor kid that was being trapped by some weird plant tentacle things when that happened the game has a core mechanic in which uh, the dice explode when it rolls the mass number on the die one of the players had, i think it was assigned a d8 on her stat uh, for rolling for the attack and she wanted just to cut the plant and that was going to be over the thing that happened is that we didn't have our player characters so much developed. So it was just a a girl with some certain things that she wanted to do, but she started rolling, and she rolled mats. So it exploded, and it exploded again, and again, and it split four times. <laughs> wow. <laughs> then it, it was the moment that I had to describe what went on, because that was massive. I couldn't say, I didn't know it was going to happen that way, that hard. So... What ended up happening is that uh, this character, Molly, her eyes turned to red, crimson, and her surrounding turned to red as well as she developed some kind of Phoenix-like powers like in the Yes Men, and she started to break everything apart and the plant as well. Went out of control as well, uh, all the same. And it became a, a core part of her character right now. So as time went on, she is now trying to... Stop that power from taking her over in some way. And it was all because of one role
1: that was unexpected on the first session. That's awesome. Nice. So what about you, Ange? Where where have Dice gone haywire and and changed the course of your campaign? Several years ago,
0: I was running an Eberron campaign using Pathfinder. And one of my players was playing a gunslinger. Now, the, the party was a great party, you know, they—they they, fantastic characters. They had a, a fighter, they had a warlock, not a warlock, a um, witch, an oracle, a cavalier, who's basically a fighter with a mount, a uh, wizard, and then the uh, the gunslinger. And anyone who's played Pathfinder with a gunslinger knows that when they crit, those the, the damage can be a little extraordinary.
1: Just so a little.
0: These characters are in the Library of Kornberg uh, which is in the, the Gnomish city, and they need to get information about a faraway continent that they need to travel to. And they get there, and the head of the university doesn't want to have anything to do with them because he's got more problems on his hand. But seeing that they're adventurers, and he one of the problems he has on his hands is a clay golem that is loose in the laboratories beneath the library, he's like, fine, I'll talk to you, I'll give you a half an hour if you go deal with this problem of mine. And the players are like, well, what's the situation? And they find out that the the golem is locked behind a door and everyone presumes that the, the scientist who was working with it is dead because the golem went haywire. Uh, and so they're like, okay, we'll go down there in half an hour, we're going to do a little bit of research. I'm like, well, this guy really doesn't have a choice. So, And they are at the Library of Cornbrook. So I let them take a half an hour to basically research how to deal with a clay golem. And they discovered that golems were vulnerable to adamantine, at which point the gunslinger was like, oh, hey, I have some adamantine bullets. <laughs> Not quite understanding what they were, thinking they were something else, but he had them on his character sheet anyway. So they get prepared. They go down there. They kick in the doors. There is the golem with little gnome bits on his feet from the scientists that he had killed and the monk went first, ran in did a flurry of blows, did about 10 points of damage. The Cavalier went next. He rode in on his Tiger Mount uh, and slashed it once, probably did about eight points of damage. And then Gunslinger went, and the Gunslinger critted. And the Gunslinger did 88 points of damage.
1: Oh, wow.
0: Because of the type of gun he had, the feats he had regarding criticals, and the fact that he was using adamantine bullets. One attack, and the Clay Golem was gone. I was I was kind of expecting that to go a little differently, but the players at the table were so excited and like nobody like the three people who hadn't had a chance to go yet were not upset about this fact at all. They were like, yes, it's done. We did it. We're good to go. And I'm like, yep, you guys are good to go. So basically I just had to pad the rest of the session with a little bit more role playing. Right? As they 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 got a congratulatory party by the other the other teachers at the uh the the col you know the 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 library of Kornberg. So
2: So they're going to call them That's slick. <laughs> yes, of happiness.
0: I mean my players still talk about that today.
2: Yeah, that's an amazing. One.
0: So the playtest for the latest iteration of D&D has offered up a rule change that states that on a D20 roll, a one is always a failure, and a 20 is always a success. Now, this goes against what they've stated in the past, since that was only true for attack rolls, not saving throws or ability checks. Mm -hmm. Because this has aroused a great deal of discussion, I thought it would be cool to gather some gnomes and talk about the GM skill of knowing when and when not to ask for rolls. Because while this is a change in the rules of this very dominant game in the hobby, it's how a lot of people run their games anyway. And I think it's important to talk about we as GMs have to learn the skill of knowing when to ask for the role and when not, because it's one thing to tell new GMs that you should only ask for a role when it's important, but it's another for GMs to put this into action. So let's get talking about it. JT, why don't you tell us you know, about how you learned this particular GM skill. Like you talked about this dungeon.
1: That's probably where I learned not to put hundred percent blocker capable die rolls in front of my, 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 my players because they, that one bad die roll, you just, all your plans are out the window. Maybe, maybe that story, maybe that adventure, maybe the campaign for me, I only want die rolls to be involved where failure has a consequence. If the failure is I failed to do it, that's really not a consequence. If the failure is I lose my grip from the slippery rope bridge that is falling apart, and I plummet down the chasm into the raging river below, yeah, that's a consequence. That means there's a die roll. I think climb speed is half your base move, so like somebody trying to climb a 15-foot-tall wall... If you fail, that means you got zero forward. You didn't. You didn't go anywhere. If you roll the dice eighty times in a row and you finally get that success, so that you can climb your base fifteen foot climb speed to get to the top of the wall, there's no point in the die rolls at all. It all it is doing it's, it's consuming time both in game and at the table, unless there's a timer on the table, like you got to get over that wall in the next three rounds or else. Just say you climb the wall and move on.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. What about you, Tomas?
2: Touching on the same subject that you were touching, Shati, about timing. I think that timing is very important when you need to decide when and when not to roll. Because your session may last, let's say, four hours, five. And if you are having the players roll, for every single little action, you're going to spend a lot of time. To add up to what you were saying, I think that not only you need to take into account uh, consequences, but also what is interesting for the table. Because maybe uh, falling into a castle uh, because of a bad role can be exciting, but that will mean that the story will go in a totally different way, uh, maybe, and you weren't planning for that, or uh, the adventure that you're running goes in a separate way. Uh, you don't want to spend like two sessions to go back to the point you were at the first uh, moment. So if you want to make something interesting, and uh, keep going forward to the points that uh, players want to be in. Just don't make the roll when nothing interesting comes out from that role. What do you think about this?
0: I think the key to making it interesting is one of the most important things. I know I learned a lot when I started running some Powered by the Apocalypse games, because they won. they tell you to be a fan of the play, you know, the, the characters, because you want to see them do interesting things. But they also talk about, it depends on the, which one, but one of the core lessons I learned from them is like, if the players fail on the role, that doesn't necessarily mean they don't succeed at what they were trying to do. Exactly. What it means is they've now made the situation way more complicated. So you yep. have your rogue trying to pick a lock on a door. Your adventure is behind that door. You don't want them to fail. So what happens is if that character falls fails the role, they get the door unlocked, but there's an unintended consequence behind that door. There are guards there that are sort like, who's this opening the door? And now you've got a new <laughs> problem for the players to deal
1: with. Yeah, failure for
0: the important thing is never ask for a role that you are not prepared for the consequences.
1: And I also don't ask for a roll if what they're attempting to do is just flat out impossible, yeah. which I typically run fantasy games. That expands the realm of possibility because of magic mm-hmm. and the rule of cool and the rule of heroism, right? The, all three of those take your limitations and, and remove some of them. However, there are still, I want to get a running start and leap across the Grand Canyon because if I roll a that 20, I'm going to do it. Yeah. No, you're not. No, there's no die roll. You're going to jump, you know, some, you know, 10 to 20 feet off the edge and plummet to your death at the bottom. Yeah. There's no die roll, right? It's just, you're not going to pull it off. And on the flip side, if success is pretty much guaranteed, like climbing the 15 foot wall, unless there's a consequence of not doing it on the first try, I don't do, I don't do a die roll. I just kind of wave at him and say, no, put your dice down, man. You, you, you do it.
0: I put a lot of that to something I call respecting the competency of the characters. There you go. Basically means understand that depending upon what game you're playing, these characters are competent. They are here doing a job that they have done before. Now, this may not be true in something like Kids on Brooms because they're they're kids and part of the yeah. fun of the game is that they're learning, they're figuring things out. But if you're playing a game with some seasoned adventurers, even that wizard is going to be able to climb that
1: 15-foot wall. Absolutely.
0: Don't ask for roles where you're you're giving a competent character a chance to fail at something they should be able to do without much trouble. Right. Another thing I'll touch on is uh, uh, in the conversation about this rule change in d and I saw somebody say, I don't want the stupid barbarian to suddenly roll a knowledge check and know something. I'm like, what? It's knowledge check. Right. So what if the barbarian suddenly remembers a piece of information that the wizard can't pull up?
1: Right. What if the barbarian sat at the knee of the tribal elder and actually paid attention to the old stories of the old yeah. times, right? And that's where the knowledge came mm-hmm. from. I've had the cleric and wizard fail to recognize the runes that formed a summoning circle, but the barbarian did. So on the fly, I was like, oh, yeah, they're using tribal runes from your enemy's tribe to form the symbology for the summoning circle and that's why the cleric and the wizard didn't know it because they don't know your enemy tribe but you do and just on the fly I, I, I just made up some a, a large heaping pile of BS but it, it, it worked <laughs> uh, and it was very obvious to the players that I was creating a big huge heaping pile of BS on the fly but it was mm-hmm. important to the character moment so and, and it worked
2: Yeah, or maybe the barbarian can find that uh, word they are trying to guess funny, and that's just the only reason they remember it.
0: You know, it's a social situation. You know, nobody in the party wants the barbarian to talk to the noble, but the barbarian rolls a 19 or a 20. Okay, the noble finds this guy charming. You know, just roll it. There you go. Yeah. I think my advice there is... As a GM, don't punish the players because you don't think they're capable of a thing that you would think somebody else would be capable of.
1: Right. I completely agree.
0: Yeah, don't let them try something absolutely impossible. You know, uh, the the common one that comes up is the bard seducing the dragon.
1: Sure. It's
0: okay to not let the bard try to seduce the dragon.
1: (laughs) You know, dragons
0: are interested in half-elves or whatever, so... It's okay to say, no, that's not going to work. You can try to charm him and make him friendly to you. Yeah, I mean, not charm is in the spell, but charm is in sweet talk him and get him to be like, okay, maybe I won't squish these people just yet. But you don't have to give in to the, just because they rolled a 20, they they, they get whatever they want. It's not a wish spell. Have you had in your game, Tomas, where you've had to quickly adjust when you asked for a roll you didn't need to, or or they succeeded at something you didn't expect them to succeed at?
2: Well, I wanted to point out something that is very interesting to me, that I learned a lot from, that is the gum show system, in which Mm -hmm. you act as a detective, and sometimes you don't need to roll to get some clues for um, a case you're working on. You just, because you're competent enough, you get the clue. And that's something that I imported to my own games, not only on the detective aspect, but many different moments. If you have a, a moment in which you want the players to notice that the big ball was in that room and there is a note uh, that is hanging uh, somewhere on that place, it will be pretty important for the players to find that note because they would roll a one on an investigation check. That doesn't mean that they don't find the, the thing; they just maybe don't find something else that was there. They think that this note that I am talking about, maybe they just find it because they went, wanted to investigate the place but if they rolled a 20 let they gain not only the note but also a stash of money that the big battle left behind have you had any similar moments in your games um,
0: i totally agree with you tomas about the gumshoe system uh the whole concept of don't block your players from getting the clues for me that's almost like a philosophical thing i put into jamming now you know, if, if I'm running any mystery, a mystery of any kind, the players get the clues. Their roles just determine either additional information they get from those clues or more insight they get into those clues.
1: Yeah, for me, I use the die roll to determine how long it takes them to get the clue. They're going to get it. And if they roll really well, maybe they find the base clue quickly. And if they roll really well, maybe again or that first roll is just extraordinary for whatever reason they get a clue plus, you know, like like a clue or two or three very quickly. If they roll really poorly, well, they just get the one clue. But it's, it's vital that they get that one clue. But it might take them 20, 30 minutes of searching as opposed to two minutes.
0: One of the other things that's important to remember when developing your skills about this topic is remembering that your players do like to roll the dice.
1: Yeah. Yes.
0: One of the things I will often do is like, I'll just ask the party for a perception check somebody is going to see what I want them to see. It's just that role is going to determine who I give that information to. Sure. You know, sometimes in d and D, I'll just rely on the passive perception, but then it's always going to the same player. You know, so sometimes I'll just have everyone roll and somebody new might get you know, that chance to, to notice a thing that's going to be important for the party to be, be aware of.
2: Yeah, what they usually do on D&D is saying, well, everyone with a passive perception that is over fourteen, roll.
0: Exactly. You know, something along those lines. Uh, sometimes I'll do that with insight. Sometimes I'll do that with certain knowledge skills.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Somebody in the party needs to understand that they're dealing with something arcane here. Okay, everyone gets to roll an arcana roll. You know, or at least the characters it makes sense for get to roll an arcana roll. Yeah. It's a balance. You don't want to make them roll too much for stupid things, but you still want to let them have the chance to to pick up the dice and roll them to feel like they're doing something.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: Party as a whole may be advancing the story, but, you know, give them a chance to roll.
2: Yeah, that's why this aspect of the game is so much tied into the pacing of it as well.
0: Yes. Yeah, pacing is, is important. Mm-hmm. This is one of those things that I think GMs will learn over time. The more you GM, the more you learn these things. But it is, I think it is important to for us experienced GMs to have these conversations so that newer GMs can be like, oh, okay. Because otherwise, you feel, as a new GM, you feel like you got to ask for a role for everything.
1: Oh, yeah, totally. Those dice are there to be used, so we better put them to use. Yeah. Oh, gosh, I did that for years, years and years. Over a decade, I'm sure. Right. Until I figured out that sometimes somebody wants to do something and it's either so awesome or so obvious of a success. Um or so obvious of a failure, you, you just give them that flat yes or no.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm still angry at the GM who who wanted to roll for everything and then basically ruined a plan the PCs had successfully pulled off because he decided his GM NPC was doing something. Uh, basically, we had oh no. we had waylaid some people. We didn't want to hurt them. We just needed something off of them. So we waylaid these people, successfully got them knocked out. They were fine. You know, we got the things we needed off of them. And then the GM decided his NPC was sitting on one of them. And he rolled a one. So, oh, no, that NPC is now dead. And it's like,
1: oh, no. What?
0: Oh. What? Why, that- why would you do that? Right. I will confess that was a period of my life when I was so desperate for gaming, I put up with GMing that bad.
1: <laughs> I'm oh.
0: thankfully no longer in that position.
1: <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. There was a published adventure. Won't name it because it was absolutely horrible, uh, and it was a big, big, big company publisher too. So that might give you some hints. Um, but there was a series of skill checks. Basically, you're taken slave or captured or conscripted. I forget, it's been years. And there's a series of skill checks to determine your rank on it, the ship, whether you're going to be like, you know, swabbing the decks or, or, or bailing out the, the belly of the ship or working up in the, the crow's nest or whatever. And there were like 10 skill checks in a row, were first level characters. The odds of making one skill check was 20% at most. Because when you're first level in this system, uh, the die is more important than your, or contributes more to the math than your statistics and skill ranks do, yeah. right? So I'm like, okay, mm. so there, I gotta make, I gotta make ten skill checks in a row. My character sits down, I don't even try, and the game master was like, what? I was like, I just did the math. This is guaranteed failure. I don't even try. I'm just gonna sit here. He's like, well, he, the the captain's gonna beat you. Okay, I sit there and take it. And I was like, I'm not going to fight back. I'm just not going to participate. And that's when the game master was like, oh, this adventure sucks. And it was basically (laughs) crumple, crumple, toss. And we bailed on that campaign and reset and did a session zero next week, the next week, and and moved on to something different.
0: I do think there's definitely been a design philosophy shift, thankfully, over the last 40 years, because back in the 80s... In the 90s, there were a lot more adventures that were written with those, you know, one point, everything fails. I remember losing one of my favorite characters in the late 80s because the party triggered a pit trap. Everyone failed the role and fell into the pit trap. Oh, no. And the GM declared the campaign was done. We weren't dead. We were just at the bottom of this pit trap. Sure. And the GM declared the campaign was over because there was no way for us to get out of the pit trap.
1: Uh, you could create your way creative your way out. That's the fucking minute from the GM.
0: Yeah. The GM said there's no way to get out unless somebody is outside and lowers a rope to you. That's really dumb. That's really dumb. Ouch. But Ouch. it was a different time. <laughs> sure. Yeah.
1: yeah, the adventuring I'm referencing to referencing was published in twenty twelve, so it's not even that oh, old. Yeah. I mean, relatively speaking, right? They should have known better by twenty twelve, but anyway mistakes are still made, right? Still learning.
0: We we could have a whole other episode talking about published adventures that don't <laughs> quite measure up. Putting all of the information that the PCs need to have in one character they may not even need to know they go need to go talk to. Oh, no. We should probably wrap up. Any last advice that you would give to new GMs on figuring out the balance between asking for roles and not asking for roles?
2: Well, I have one more Sometimes uh, players are so smart or good at talking, role-playing sometimes, that they create a great moment, maybe an emotive one, one in which they just make it in a way that there's no way this can fail a a role. If they roll a one after that, you are just making the poor player that took a lot of effort to make that whole role-playing moment, you're destroying it. Those kinds of moments, just let them make the the roll is a twenty. I don't know. Uh, you just let them pass.
0: It's one of those situations where you don't want to punish the players that aren't confident in their role playing skills. You want to give them a chance to make a roll to see if they can influence that social situation. Yeah. But if you have a good moment of role playing, don't interrupt it for a die roll. Just go with the flow. Roll with the scene. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Remember, uh, con game at gen con quite a few years ago where i was already really annoyed at the gm for several things he had done and then he actually interrupted a moment of great role playing to have the players roll dice to see how it was emotionally affecting them and i'm like just killed the only momentum this game had
2: you
1: need to read those
2: moments
0: what about you jt any last
1: words last words of advice I'm going to piggyback a little bit on Tomas. You know, He's talking about those great moments and all that. I'm going to go with the rule of cool, which I think I mentioned earlier in the, in the podcast. Mm-hmm. If the players come up with the absolute best plan of action that is so cool and it's going to be cinematic to the point where you can hear the theme music playing in the background, <laughs> don't make them roll a die. Now, if they're doing something really insane, like a, a Rube Goldberg machine or something like that, then okay, yeah, there's going to be some die rolls involved. But if their plan is just straightforward, no plan is fail-proof, I'm not going to say that, but if it is just so cool that you know there's theme music associated with what they're doing, Mm -hmm. let them do it. Just let it roll. How about you, Ange? Any last words?
0: Understand that this is a learning process. No GM is perfect the first time they run, and understand that if you make a mistake and call for a role you shouldn't have that's okay you live and you learn you can move on you know just the the important thing is make sure whenever you're calling for a role it has a chance to advance the story of the game whether it's a failure or a success and don't punish your players I'll let your players have those moments of cool you live you learn you'll figure it out Mm-hmm. This show is funded by the Gnome Stew Patreon. You too can become a Patreon backer by following the Patreon link on the Gnome Stew website to the Gnome Stew Patreon. This ad is brought to you by the Min Maximizer. While you may not be able to guarantee a 20 on that important roll, you can certainly optimize your character to the extreme. Sign up for the Min Maximizer, and we will make sure that your character is ridiculously competent in at least one single, possibly useful area. Join today! If you're enjoying the Gnome cache, you'll probably like many of the other Misdirected Mark shows, here's one to check out.
2: Misdirected Mark. People Chris, Bob, and Sherry break down and get inside games, game mastering, playing games, and game design in an effort to entertain and inform you.
0: You can find all of us at gnomestu.com, at gnomestu on Twitter, and gnomestu on Facebook. Gnomes, is there anything else you'd like to give a shout out to today?
1: Yeah, I have a thing. I'd say, I wouldn't say old game. It's five, six years old, something like that. But I recently discovered it. I had some store credit at an online used role-playing website. So I went and spent some money on new role-playing stuff just to, this sounds cool. I'm going to buy it because I had store credit. And one of the games I bought was uh, Zweihander Grim and Perilous RPG. Honestly, I had never heard of this thing before. And I don't know how because it won a gold any in 2018. It came out in 2017 I read the little blurb on the the website and said yes, I must have that, and I bought it and a couple of expansions and blah blah blah. It arrived. It is beautiful. You have to keep it away from small children because if it falls on one of them, it will kill the child. <laughs> <laughs> it is a huge book, very heavy, very dense, but I, I'm not even I haven't even scratched the surface, and I'm super impressed. I haven't gotten it to the table yet, but if you want to read some clearly written rules, and great pros to go along with it, and excellent artwork, I recommend it. Maybe I'll give you an actual like recommendation of playing the game at some point in the future. I hope to bring it to the table. So
0: That's awesome. What about you, Tomas? Anything you want to give a shout out to?
2: Firstly, there are some games based on Swighhander that you can try out as well. That, so just so you know, well, something that I wanted to make a shout out to is a bit selfish, but there's an article I wrote about everything that we talked about, that it is for Trivality that I wanted to point out, called "What When Should GMs Ask for Dice Rolls? And I'm going to leave it somewhere, on someplace. It's from some years ago, so, well, last year. So maybe some things changed from the things I talked about.
0: We'll include a link in the show notes. What about you, man? I don't know that I have anything major to give a shout-out to, but I would say that if you are looking to run d and 5e specifically and you're looking for a VTT to use I have been very happy with Shard it's uh, shard.com I will have a link in the show notes as well but I've been running my my new Eberron campaign there and I'm quite happy with it it doesn't have any licensing from Wizards so you can't buy anything more than what is in the SRD but it's very easy to make the content you need or use the content that they already have available
1: cool That's great.
0: Do you all think this episode was good enough to keep you out of the stew? Or should I be considering tossing you in?
1: You need to have... Depends on my die roll.